chapter 2. I'm calling this message, God's Unexpected Glory. God's Unexpected Glory. And what I'm going to do is read Luke 2, 8 through 21. I'm only going to preach from verses 8 through 14. Unless I'm really wound up as I get to the end of the message. We'll see. I reserve that right. No, just kidding. It's uh, 8 to 14 will be the substance of the message. But I do want to read Luke 2, 8 through 21. And um, after I read it, I'll pray for us again before we get into the message. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Would you pray with me? Father, we come under your word as the truth, as a revelation of your love for us, as a guiding light for us in our lives, as a comforting and encouraging hope for us in the world. By the power of your spirit and by the kindness that resides in your heart, would you help us this morning and bless us this morning, encourage us this morning, that we would treasure up these things in our hearts, that we would ponder these things in our hearts. Jesus Christ, your Savior for us, we thank you, we thank you, we worship you, and Lord, we want to hear from you. Holy Spirit, come, open our hearts, open our minds that we would live for you and love you more and more. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. God's unexpected glory. It's not unexpected that God would be a glorious being. He is an uncreated being who has existed from all eternity. He created everything else 
invisible, visible. He's a glorious being. It's not unexpected that God is glorious. But what's unexpected is that God would share his glory to the lowly and to the undesirable. This is the unexpected glory of God. You can think of the richest people in the world, the most powerful people in the world, showing up to my house for dinner. Right? Take that to the millionth degree. It's just an incomprehensible degree of that scenario. This is what God does. He reveals and shares His glory with the lowly and the undesirable. And that should make clear something hopefully you already know, that God operates on different principles than what the world operates on. And the glorious and the powerful, unworldly standards don't just show up to the houses of the lowly and undesirable. But I want you to know that this is the story of the Bible. A God of infinite, radiant glory, power, beyond human comprehension. He shares himself with lowly, undesirable sinners. This is the love of God. This is the plan and purpose of God. And we get a really nice window into that this morning as we see the unexpected glory of God revealed to shepherds who were in the field. You know, what happens in the story is only half of what I'm concerned about this morning. I am concerned about what happens in the story. But the other half of what we all need to be concerned about is what happens in our lives in response to what happens in this story. Will we give our lives to this Savior? Will we submit more and more of our lives to this Savior? Will our hearts become more and more filled with awe and wonder at the unexpected glory of God that He has revealed Himself to us, the lowly and the undesirable? Would will we be stirred by what happens in this story? Or will it go right over our heads? structured this in its simple way for us. First, we're going to talk about a glorious sight. And then after we talk about this glorious sight, we're going to talk about the glorious Savior. The glorious sight that comes first to the shepherds is only to make way for this announcement of a glorious Savior. There's a sight There's a Savior, and then finally we're going to talk about a glorious song. There's a sight, a heavenly sight, that gives way to a message about the Savior. But that's followed by a song of praise to the God who has sent this Savior. There's a sight, and a Savior, and a song. A glorious sight to lowly shepherds. A glorious sight. Savior for lowly sinners. And a glorious song sung over a lowly world. This is the path of the passage. So first of all, a glorious 
sight from verses 8 and 9. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. A glorious sight to lowly shepherds, and it is a sight that should change their outlook about everything in life. Verse 8, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. That in and of itself is not the glorious sight. This is everyday thing. Verse 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. This is the glorious sight. Angels coming from the invisible heavenly realm, directly from the presence of God, breaking across the barrier between the visible and the invisible, and manifesting, this one angel at this point, manifesting himself to shepherds in the field. This is a glorious sight, and it is personal it is supernatural, and it is frightful. First of all, it's personal. Uh, look at verse 8 and 9 again. This is a revelation directly to the shepherds. It's not happening in an arbitrary way, and the shepherds just happen to be there. Same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of, a Lord, of the Lord appeared to them. This is representative for us. This is a personal revelation from God through an angel to shepherds. It's representative for us of a theme that runs throughout the Gospel of Luke and something that will help us to understand Christianity. God does not accomplish his purposes through worldly elites. This is for the common man, the common person. This is representative for us as you read through the Gospel of Luke. You'll see that the principles and priorities and standards of the world get flipped on their head in the kingdom of God. In that culture and time, women were lowly, children were lowly, lepers were outcasts. But these ones are prioritized in the kingdom of God in the gospel of Luke and sought out by God as a particular manifestation of the mercy of God to the lowly and forgotten and the outcast. He eats with tax collectors and sinners and he welcomes prostitutes and he's criticized for it. He ministers to the demon possessed. He prioritizes foreigners, Gentiles, Roman soldiers. The personal revelation of God. There is application here for all of us. Because one of the pandemics today is a sense of self-superiority over others. Self-superiority over others. But in the kingdom of God, there's no place for that. This is the place for humbled servants. And the D at the end of humbled is very important. We must be humbled by God. Humbled, brought low. We're all naturally proud. And we all naturally tend toward this feeling of self-superiority. Where we necessarily will look down on others and see them as the lowly. 
But you see, we're to see ourselves as the lowly. We're to see ourselves as the undesirable in light of God and who He is. And we must be humbled by God and repent of any sense of self-superiority that would just make us self-righteous and bitter and filled with discontent and a vehicle of division in the world. But this is a personal revelation. It's to lowly shepherds. There's nothing special about these shepherds in a worldly sense. It's a personal revelation. Glorious sight, this heavenly messenger. But it's supernatural. Now, I, I think that's clear. Look at verses, uh, not verse 9 again. Angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. In a sense, seeing into heaven. Now what's happening is the angel is coming to them. But just by nature of who the angel is, brings the glory of heaven with him. And so what happens? The glory of the Lord is shining around them. Could there be a brighter glory? The glory of the sun is not brighter than this. It would be like if you opened your front door and the sun was right there. You would be terrified and in pain in a real sense. You see phrases like this, the glory of the Lord shone around them. The radiant glory of God Almighty brought because this messenger has just stepped out of heaven where God's glory shines in full radiance into the presence of these shepherds in a field in Palestine on earth. This is a supernatural event. This is not mundane. This is not boring. This is not an everyday thing. It's meant to get attention. It's meant to shock them. And I think there's application here as well. Today we're far too bored with the things of God. And just think about the amount of things that we would rather do um, before we would, or in place of, or besides, just stopping and praying by ourselves. Or thinking about the amount of things that would give us so much excitement if we had the opportunity to do before or besides, or instead of just sitting at the dining room table reading God's Word. And we're, we're far too excited about worldly things and not nearly excited or stirred up enough about the things of God. There's nothing boring about who God is and what God is doing in the world. And this is a supernatural event that's happening. It's a historically unique event. Angels don't come to shepherds every week just to remind us that God is glorious, okay? This is a unique event that accompanied the conception and the birth of Christ. But it tells us something about what's going on in the world beyond what we can see. It reminds us there is a heavenly realm. There is a heaven. There is a God. He does have angels. Miracles do happen. Supernatural things do happen. The Holy Spirit is real. And your time in prayer and your time in God's word and your time gathering with the church to worship, brothers and sisters, is not in vain. God is at work. And he will encourage us, and he will strengthen us, and he will sanctify us, and he will use us to reach the lost. God is active. God is living. We're far too bored 
with the things of God, with supernatural things. That's not a shock to you to hear that we live in a materialistic society. And we're far too enthralled and, and captivated by material things, temporary things. And we know that. You know, but repenting from that is a different story. But you have a personal revelation, this, this glorious sight to these lowly shepherds. It's personal, it's supernatural, and it's frightful. It's frightful. You see, the end of verse 9, they were filled with great fear. It didn't, uh, the angel didn't catch the attention of one shepherd who, oh, this is interesting, and he turned to his buddies and told them, they were stricken with fear, terror, because of the radiance and power that's before them. It's a frightful, frightful amount of heavenly power and brightness that's before them. We're not afraid of the right things in this world. What are the things that most people are afraid of? We're afraid of people aren't going to like us. We're afraid of that we're not going to have enough of the earthly comforts that we want. We're afraid we're not going to have enough independence. There's too many constraints and constrictions on my freedom and my independence. We should be, with the proper fear of the Lord, we should be concerned with eternity. We should be concerned with our invisible soul. We should be concerned with our relationship with God and our standing before God. These should be top priority things we're concerned about. But as long as we are just wrapped up in the, the, uh, the spirit of the age, concerned what other people are going to say about us, concerned what other people are going to think about us, it's, it's First of all, we're, we're delusional. You think there's this mass of humanity somewhere who sees you and sees your life and has this fixed opinion about you. All this uh, concern and worry and fear that you have about what other people thinking of you, it's all in your head. It's all in your head. You know what they're thinking about as they go to sleep at night? Probably what other people are thinking about them. They're not thinking about you. But this is one of the most effective and powerful tools and traps of the devil to get you, to get me, fixated on the opinions of others. And I just want to say this to you. Please be liberated from that this morning. Who cares what other people think about you? Who cares what other people say about you? The question, friends, is what does God think about you? What does God say about you? What has God done in your life? Are you right with him? And just a reminder, 
This is why churches exist in communities, to keep us mindful of these things, to keep us mindful of the eternal, to keep us mindful of our souls, to keep us mindful of our relationship with God, to get our minds off of these other things that don't matter. If you take churches out of communities, true biblical churches, that message disappears. And on our own, apart from that message, we all know what direction we would go. It wouldn't be the godly one. It's a frightful thing that's happening here. Heaven made known, the glory of God made known to shepherds. It's a glorious sight. It's personal, it's supernatural, and it's frightful. Glorious sight. But this glorious sight gives way to a message about a glorious Savior. And that's our second point. It's a glorious Savior for lowly sinners. And it's a glorious Savior for lowly sinners that should absolutely change our outlook on life. The message of this Savior should change our outlook in life. Verses 10 through 12. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. A glorious Savior for lowly sinners. So first you have a heavenly messenger. But now what do you get? You get to the critical element, the heavenly message. This is why the angel came, to give them the message about a glorious Savior for lowly sinners. And this message is global, it's hopeful, and it's simple. It's global, it's hopeful, and it's simple. Look at the end of verse 10. See if you can pick out a key phrase. That will be for all the people. Now, here's what that means. I have to summarize it. It means the Jewish nation and all other nations. Is that clear? All the people. It's for the Jewish people through whom the Savior was promised and historically through whom this Savior has come, and all other nations. This Savior is a global Savior. This message is a global message. Now this should remind us a little bit, not a little bit, this should remind us a lot of bit, strike the little bit from the record, of the heart we should have as a church. We should not see ourselves as a closed group. We should not see ourselves along the illustration of a private or secret society, but more like a public, inviting, welcoming community of faith. It's for all the peoples, all the peoples can come to this Savior and be right with God. This is global. We should have... Uh, we should have that in our hearts. We must have that in our hearts. That this is not just about us. We're not a closed off group of elites. This is, we're to have a voice. 
We're to have arms that are open and arms that are reaching and hearts that are open and hearts that are reaching. This is the global, it's for all peoples. But it's also hopeful, and this is very important because the shepherds were terrified. They didn't know if this angel was an agent of destruction, a harbinger of wrath. That does happen in history and in the Bible. God does come in judgment in different instances. The shepherds are just like me and just like you. They're sinners, and they deserve God's judgment. So they don't know, but so it's very important that this day, angel comes with a message of hope. It's a global message. It's a hopeful message. Verse 10, one more time. The angel said to them, fear not. It's a nice turn in the story. They're filled with terror. Fear not. For behold. Right? So, fear not. For behold. So, angels very clearly communicating the, the reason why they shouldn't be afraid. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Good news of great joy. A gospel that should produce exceeding joy in your heart. That's what that means. It's good news of great joy. It's a good news means gospel. It's a gospel, the gospel of God, a message of hope from God. It's a global message. It's a hopeful message. There's something to meditate on here about optimism and hope. I don't mean in... uh, a vague, you know, worldly sense. I mean in a specific sense, optimistic, that God is going to accomplish what God has said he's going to accomplish. God is going to bring his gospel to the ends of the world. God is going to save sinners from all nations, from all peoples, from all tribes, from all tongues. God is going to do this. And the idea of pessimistic believers is an oxymoron. That's a contradiction. God has told us what his purpose is. To disciple the nations through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit through local churches spreading all over the world, the kingdom of heaven. We must believe. We must have faith. That's one of the ways you can think about the whole entire Bible is just story after story after story of God Uh, either saying he's going to do something or God doing something. And the question is always the same. Do the people believe it or do they not believe it? Do they they have faith or do they not have faith? Are they submitting their, their lives in line with what God says, in line with what God is doing or not? And I just want to say this to you. Believe it. Believe in God's power. Have an optimism, a.k.a. have a faith. God is going to do what God has promised to do. Save a multitude of sinners for his glory. What do we think? That God doesn't have the power to do that? Certainly he has the power to do that. Do we think that God has forgot his promise or forgot his purpose? That's absurd. He's faithful. This is his purpose. This is his plan for all things to create a people for himself. To manifest his glory and manifest his love. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. Have hope. Have faith. What happens? 
you know what happens. We look at the things that happening in the world around us. We see negative things here. Kingdom of darkness manifesting itself here. Lies are spreading. Wickedness is spreading. And we think that those things define reality. Those things do not define reality. Those things are one aspect of reality. We live in a battlefield. There's the spiritual war, the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness, God versus Satan. But who is victorious? Christ is victorious. It's the kingdom of heaven that's victorious. We need to have an optimism. We need to have an optimism, a.k.a. we need to have a faith in what God has promised, the hope that is in the gospel, the hope that is in the gospel. The gospel has transforming power. It's a global message. It's for all peoples. It's a hopeful message. Good news of great joy. What kind of message do we have as a church? Good news of great joy for all peoples. Good news of great joy that has the supernatural power to change the mind and to change the heart, to reorient the life. So the sinners like me would be changed and live for God. And then the rest of our lives, we repent and we believe and we repent and we believe and we worship and we serve and we grow and we learn. And you know all of these things of discipleship. It's a global message. It's a hopeful message. It's a simple message. It's a simple but simply incredible message. Verses 11 and 12. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. It's a simple message. It's simple and simply incredible. A Savior. A Savior is born. A person has been born. A man has been born who's going to save Sinners from the judgment of God. A Savior. A Savior. The message of a Savior. Who is Christ the Lord. It's simple because it's about a person. And it's simply incredible. The God of infinite glory would share himself with lowly, undesirable sinners. This is what the world is about. This is the thing that's happening. This should be the, the top headline, front page, leading story every day, everywhere in the world. This is the story that's happening. God is saving sinners. God is saving sinners. It's simple and it's simply incredible. I want us to look at the phrase, in a pointed way, Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. Christ means Messiah. Christ means anointed. It's talking about the one who's anointed by God to do three things. More than that, okay? These are the three summary things, okay? You with me? Christ, Messiah, anointed, the one anointed by God to do these three things. He deletes, he defeats, and he restores. I'm going to define those for you. I thought it would be neat to give you three words for this. He deletes, he defeats, and he restores. You notice there's two negatives and a positive, right? He deletes your record of sin against God. Number one, he forgives sin. Christ, the anointed one who erases the, the record of our guilt. He removes the record of our guilt. He deletes the record of our guilt before God. This is the way we are made right with God. If Jesus deletes the record of our guilt, the record of our sin against him. Secondly, he defeats. 
He defeats our enemies as any good conquering king does. And Jesus is the Savior and he is the conquering king who defeats sin, he defeats death, and he defeats Satan. He defeats sin. It's a little bit different than the record of sin that's erased. This is Jesus defeating the ruling power of sin in our hearts. You know, more needs to happen in our lives than just our sins forgiven. This evil power in our hearts called sin that causes us to reject God and live for ourselves needs to be broken. It needs to be defeated. We need to be liberated from the reigning power of sin inside our hearts. Only Jesus can do this. He deletes our record of sin. He defeats our enemies. He's a conquering warrior who defeats sin and defeats death. So we don't need to be afraid of death. We don't need to be slaves in the face of death. And he defeats Satan, the great accuser, the great liar, the one who wants to harm us and keep us from good things. Jesus is the Christ, God's anointed, the one anointed with a special dignity and special power and special office who deletes, defeats, and restores. Now that's the positive run, right? Deletes is negative, takes something away. Defeats is negative, you do away with our enemies. But here's what all that's leading up to. He restores our relationship with God. This is about a relationship. This book, this world, this church is about one central thing. God reconciling sinners to himself through Christ. I said earlier he's creating a people for himself. Well, it's the same point said in a different way. This is about God bringing sinners into a relationship with himself that will never end, by the way. No one can take it away from you. And he does it through Jesus. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the one who deletes the record of our sin, who defeats our enemies that we could never defeat on our own. But why, is, why, does, he do bo- why does he do both of those things? To restore us to God, to bring us to God. It's about a relationship, a relationship with God that will never end. Christ, the Lord, the Lord, he's God. You know, the Lord is what qualifies him to do the work of the Christ. The Lord, being the Lord, being God, is what qualifies him, in addition to being human, to do the work of the Christ. One of the clearest teachings in all of Scripture is that only God saves. Only God saves. How can this baby save sinners? If this baby is also God, miracle of miracles, wonder of wonder, wonder of wonders, glory of glories, this little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, born to a peasant girl who's not married and who's a virgin in a stable laid in a manger box. This baby is the Savior of the world. And the only way sinners can come into a relationship with God, unexpected, unexpected glory of God. He's the person of highest dignity. He's the person of truest royalty. He's the person of purest 
majesty. He's man, and he is God, and he's the only way we can know God. There's a glorious sight. There's a glorious Savior. Both of those should change the outlook, right? The glorious sight to lowly shepherds should what? Change the outlook of those shepherds on life. The message of a glorious Savior for lowly sinners should change our outlook. How did he take away our sins? You've known the story. Hopefully it's not, it's not getting uh, old for us as the weeks go on. But he lived a perfect life, a righteousness that we could never achieve, and then he died a sacrificial death, receiving the judgment that we deserve. And it's a very, very simple thing, these gospel truths. It's profound. Right? There's a spiritual depth to them. But if you want to remember the simple, elementary gospel facts of how Jesus does this saving, he lived a righteous life, an obedient life that we could never live. If we come to him in faith, he credits that life to our account. So we stand before God as righteous and obedient. He not only lived a righteous life that we could never live, but he died a sacrificial death, receiving the penalty for our sins. So that we, if we come to him in faith, if we turn to him in faith, we never receive that penalty for our sins. So he provides an obedience for us so that we can stand before God and God says, you're obedient because Christ's obedience given to us as a gift. And he dies for our sins, taking that judgment that we deserve so that we can stand before God and God has no judgment for for our sins. It's already been paid. It's a glorious, glorious Savior. And then there, this is why, verses 13 and 15, this is why there's a glorious song. This is why there's a glorious song. And this is also why I've limited the preaching to not, not all the way to verse 21, but only stopping right around here because I knew we wouldn't have time for the entire passage. But this is why there's such a glorious song. Verses 13 to 15. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. If you have a King James or a New King James, it'll say this uh, On earth peace and goodwill toward men. There's a difference in translation there, and there are some. Translation, there's a translation difficulty there because there's not a verb. It's just two prepositional phrases. So are they two parallel phrases or is it one big phrase? Anyway, you see the central point. First you had one angel, heavenly messenger, and then he delivered the heavenly message. But now there's a heavenly multitude joining this one angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God. It's a glorious song sung over this lowly world because of why? Because of what God is doing in Jesus. And I'm going to end here on a point of application based on how this ends right here with this glorious song sung by angels upon angels upon angels. The hearts of God's servants, angels are God's servants, the hearts of God's servants should be stirred to rejoicing at what God is doing. The hearts of God's servants 
should be stirred with rejoicing at what God is doing. We should not be a bitter people. We should not be a people filled with discontent. We should not be a people ever grumbling and ever complaining. We should be, friends, a rejoicing people. We should be a warm people. We should be a people whose hearts are filled with the richness of Christ and the joy of Christ and the peace of Christ. We should be a singing people. We should be a rejoicing people filled with joy inexpressible. 1 Peter chapter 1. This is who we should be. Our lives, just like the lives of those shepherds, should be reoriented by what God is doing in Jesus, represented here by this point in his life. He's a baby, but you understand he's not a baby anymore. He's not wrapped in swaddling clothes anymore. He's not cute and adorable anymore. He's clothed with the regal glory of heaven itself as Lord over all things, visible and invisible, In heaven and on earth, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He has more power than we could possibly comprehend, more dignity and radiance than we could possibly comprehend. And yet, he invites you and I into a relationship with him that will never end. Unexpected glory, unexpected glory of God toward lowly, undesirable sinners. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your power. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the life of Christ. Thank you for the ongoing ministry of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.